Hi, you're listening to audio from Rock Hill Church. To check out more resources, please visit rockhilllawrence.com. Thank you for joining us. And it's great to be with you, Ridgepoint. Um, this journey for us began, I think, four summers ago. It was summer of 19 when I got this call from this dear man who's become a brother. His name was Dennis. And uh, said, I hear you're homeless. And uh, said, matter of fact, we, we're about to be. And he said, let's talk. Let's see if we can make something work for you. And so every chapter, every step of the way in our community, Bridgepoint, you have been so gracious to us. And I was nervous when Dennis said he was going to transition out. And I was more nervous when I heard his nephew is coming, who is a Cardinals fan. That was really a problem for me (laughs) at first, because I'm a baseball guy, if you don't know that. And I know a little bit about Cardinals fans. They know the game better than any fan base. They're also the snootiest of any fan base. So anybody that doesn't play like Stan Musial, Pepper Martin, or Bob Gibson, they're like, boo, you know, get off the field. They still think Musial's at first base. Um, but they appreciate things like wearing your socks right. Uh, they get more excited about the right fielder hitting his cutoff man than they do a home run. They like a hit and run better than they do a home run because they like the idea of working together as a team, you know, in a hit and run or a sacrifice bunt, the batter gives himself up for his teammates so he can advance. And in so many ways, that's what I feel like this relationship has been like. Uh, Thank you, Bridgepoint, for letting us invade your space every week, uh, for letting us make messes uh, from time to time. Jeremy and Julian, you like, you, you need like a big sticker because you put up with us every week trying to get us out of the room so you guys can get ready. So we're very, very grateful. And we're very grateful to God that he's allowed us to be together. It's, I, I don't want to understate that with you. Um, we believe our part of our formation as a community has been the grace that you guys have been to us. And I really mean that. We, we love being here. We want to be a blessing to your community, and, um, and I hope we can continue uh, this. So we're going to sit with, for a few minutes this morning, a text from the Prince of Prophets, Isaiah. This passage, which is going to be in the 42nd chapter of Isaiah, is the first of a series of songs in the prophecy Isaiah that has come to be called servant songs. Now, unfortunately, we don't have time to dive deeply in all those wonderful songs, but suffice it to say for our purposes this morning that the identity of the servant, A, it's not explicitly stated. Often when Isaiah is singing about this servant, we're not really sure who he's singing about. Sometimes it seems like it's Israel Uh, Sometimes it seems like it's another ruler, like even Cyprus. But one thing is constant, and there's this consistent undertone in the vagueness of who the servant is, that it's messianic. 
that Isaiah is not just looking at what's right in front of him and his people, who are many of who are in captivity. They've been sacked by Assyria, and to add insult to injury, some of them have been taken off into captivity in Babylon. But through all the words, there's this clear looking forward. There's this anticipation. There's this hope in Isaiah's words, even in the midst of a lot of strong judgment, that he's looking forward to a Messiah that's not going to come now for six to 700 years. All that to say, when we read Isaiah, think Jesus. Doesn't necessarily mean every word, every line is directly referencing him, but they're all moving in a direction, and the direction is amazing. So, we're just going to look at one part of one of these songs this morning. They give reference to a people in exile, a people whose identity has been shaken. A people whose identity is not anchored primarily in the land they're living, because that's been taken. A people whose identity is not tied to a political ruler, because that's also in disarrangement. A people whose identity is not even tied first to family, because many of their families were not with them anymore. Isaiah is addressing a people in exile, and he has a song to sing to them. So let's hear it together. I'm going to read from Isaiah 42, verses 1 to 9. Isaiah wants these people to find a new identity in Yahweh, who's more than just someone who has rescued them. He is Lord over all. He's Lord over all the heavens and the earth, which we're going to here. He wants them to come to define and orient their life around him. How could it be otherwise, according to Isaiah? It is Yahweh alone who is glorious in comparison with everything else, including every nation, every ruler, every authority, every power, whether spiritual in nature or earthly in nature. Yahweh is gloriously sovereign, and he does not share his glory with another. We've come to know him as God our Father, who majestically and compassionately exists as our Father, who supremely has revealed himself as God the Son in Jesus, and who now powerfully manifests his presence in his good, true, and holy spirit. That is now our reality as a people living in exile. So Isaiah's words were for them. Now they come for us. So let's hear these words. Isaiah 42, 1 to 9. Would you like to stand as I read? If you can and you're able, you don't have to if you don't want. But um, let's hear the word of the Lord. Isaiah says, Here is my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will bring, what? Justice to the nations. Just that phrase inspires hope, doesn't it? Can you imagine with me? Justice 
for all the nations. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. I had a mentor that used to say to us, don't push, don't pull, don't self-promote. He's saying this is the kind of servant this is. A bruised reed he will not break. A smoldering wick he will not snuff out. He will not take advantage of the weak. In faithfulness he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged until he establishes justice on the earth. In his teachings, I love this phrase, the islands will put their hope. It's another way of referencing the Gentiles, the nations. And then in verse 5, he leans in with these words. This is what God the Lord says, the creator of heavens, who stretches them out, who spreads out the earth with all that springs from it, who gives breath to its people and life to those who walk in it. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you and make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles to open eyes that are blind, to free captives from prison and to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name. I will not yield my glory to another or my praise to idols. See, the former things have taken place. But new things I declare before they spring into being, I announce them to you. Let's pray. Lord, these words come with their own authority. They come because you spoke them. They, they come because they're not just ink on a page. They're living and active. They're your breath. They're your thoughts. They're your mind. They're your vision for your people. They're your accounting of your presence with your people and your looking forward to what is to come. Lord, today as we sit under them, God, would you resurrect in us anew hope to a people who live in exile, to, who, to a people who don't really belong here in so many ways. Lord, we can't look to the land or to the nation or even to family to find our identity. Lord, re-anchor it once again in the one who loved us and gave himself for us. We pray this in his good name, the name that is above every name, Jesus. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. So what I want to do in just the few minutes we have is walk through four movements of hope. That's what I'm calling this, movements of hope. They're embedded in these verses 5 to 9 of Isaiah 42. The first movement is creation. You see that in verse 5. This is what God the Lord says, the creator of the heavens, who stretches them out, who spreads out the earth with all that springs from it, who gives, what, breath to his people and life to those who walk on it. So Yahweh is introduced here as the creator 
of the heavens. And brilliantly, Isaiah supplies verbs of action in, in describing this creator. He wants to give as much texture as he can to help us envision his creating not only the heavens, but also the earth. Not only the majestic scope, the looking at the sky at night, but to look at a pebble or a kernel of wheat or a flower. He wants us to imagine. He says he stretches out the heavens. Now imagine with me for just a second. Surely this is metaphorical. Surely, Nick, God did not call the divine council together and says, look, I've got this thing started, this, this thing we're going to call the universe. I need all you guys to grab a side of it and run in different directions for a trillion miles. And then we'll have the universe. Surely that's not what he means when he says he stretches out the heavens. But imagine, what does it mean? What did it look like for God to stretch the heavens? Did he have a blueprint first? Did he build a mock-up, a model first, and then get recommendations from other heavenly beings? Did he use a whiteboard? Some of you love whiteboards. Well, they're very silly questions, aren't they? But maybe they're not quite as silly as they seem. Can you imagine God creating... It's what keeps physics majors up at night. How did this happen? He created the heavens and earth in some fashion. I don't know if we're getting a video in heaven or not. I hope so. He did it in some way. We do have one way we know of. Remember in Genesis 1, then God, what? Said. His word was so powerful that he could just think it and say it. And the raw material, or a sophisticated material, of the universe and the earth came into being. Imagine that with me. Just the power of his spoken word. We know that much. Then God said, let it be light. And there was. Then God said, let the waters be separated. And guess what? They were. He stretched the heavens. God is creator. He was, he is, and he will be. He says he spread out the earth and all that springs from it. So what was that like, spreading out the earth? Is, is Isaiah trying to get at some way, maybe he doesn't even understand, kind of the natural separation of the continents, the, the drifts that we call it now, or is it something different? Is there something spontaneous in it? Did he use any tools to spread out the earth? Did he have a giant peanut butter knife? That he Was it dusty or muddy or rocky when he did it? Well, silly questions. But, but don't miss the point. Isaiah's speaking to our imagination. But then I want you to watch the direction he goes here with our creator God. <clears throat> he says he gives breath. He gives breath to 
to his people. And he gives life to those who walk on it. Just, just one thought here. <clears throat> it's notable that he's not spreading or stretching humans. He's simply giving breath. It appears the humans had nothing to do with this. There's no decision. There's no forethought on their part. There's no act of the will. There's no consciousness. God simply gave breath. And they received it. God as creator is the giver of life. That's what it says to us. That the life we have biologically, we did nothing for it. The life we have in Jesus, we did nothing for it. We're receivers. All we can do is say, yes. That's the best we can do. God is creator. In a season, remember this is an exile people. In a season when their field of vision had narrowed, you know, when, when life closes in, when life gets hard. We've been there, haven't we? It's easy for our vision to get narrow. To this exiled people, he's inspiring their vision. He's inviting them to lift their eyes to their creator and imagine what it was like to have received breath. Because he wants them to be grateful He's not waiting till they get to come back home to Jerusalem. No, they're in Babylon. And he's saying, right here, right now, you lift your eyes. And you look at your creator. And you imagine the life he has for you. Because we are his creation. And in Jesus, we are his new creation. He's doing something new, always doing something new. So that's the first movement, the movement of creation. The second one is in verse 6. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness, Isaiah says. I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you. Again, three verbs. I have, God says, I've called you in righteousness. I will hold you, he says, and I will keep you. I've called you in righteousness. What does it mean to be called in righteousness? What does it mean to have that experience? To be called by a creator in righteousness. It, seem, it seems like a wonderful thing. To have the creator, the one who spoke the universe into existence. Who did all these majestic things that are way beyond our imagination. To then think that he would actually know your name. He would single you out and say, I knew you before you were ever thought of by those humans down there. I saw your life one day. I saw the footprints you're going to leave on this earth. I know your hopes and dreams and longings. I have called you how? Righteousness. Isaiah's really getting grandiose now. He wants our vision not to just be filled with gratitude, but like this 
we're going to get there in a minute, but this deep sense of stewardship that I've been, I've been called. God has seen me in the days in my exile when no one else, I thought, could see me. He's heard my prayer whispered in the closet that I wouldn't breathe anywhere else. He's seen the longings of your heart that you've given up on. He's seen the pain and the trouble, and he says, I see you. One day, Jesus did that with Nathaniel. Remember that? Nathaniel's just hanging out under a tree, and Jesus walks by and goes, Hey, over there's a true Israelite whom there's nothing false. Nathaniel goes, Whoa, whoa. How did you know me, Lord? And I think Jesus says, Because I've been watching you. I watch you. I know you. And I want to call you to something bigger, something pure, something holy that you can't do. I want to call you in righteousness. Righteousness means so many things. It'd take us a week to try to unpack that. We won't. But one thing is certain here. God is personally involving himself in this call. See, he doesn't just call us to get stuff done for him. He doesn't need us to get stuff done for him. He calls us, and then he says, and I will hold you, and I will keep you. See, God is making personal investment in his children when he calls them. He's committing to them. He's not calling them because they are righteous. He's calling them because he is, and out of his righteousness, he's committing himself to them. They are taking his righteousness, just like they had nothing to do with being created. Now they have nothing to do with being recreated, to be made new in him. God's hand has always been open to them. You ever feel sometimes you pray and all you feel is a closed fist? Like there ain't nothing happening? Isaiah wants to inspire our imagination. He's entrusting this people, he's entrusting us to reimagine Yahweh anew with open hands. And Yahweh's hands and arms are always open. Next, let's see the move, next movement. It's the movement of covenant. Last part of verse 6 and 7. I will make you to be, say it, a covenant. Say it with me, a covenant. I'll make you to be a covenant for the people. You to be a covenant for the people. A light for the Gentiles to open eyes that are blind, to free captives from prison and release from the dungeon those who sit, sit in darkness. Amazing words. I mean, is he just, is he, who's he talking about? We know Jesus grabs these words. This is one of his favorite. He stands up in the Nazarene synagogue and he quotes this. I have come to set the prisoners free. I've come to give sight to the blind. I have come to declare thee. This is the year of Jubilee. It is a messianic prophecy for sure. It's repeated in chapter 61 of Isaiah, a little bit different way. But it's also coming to this people in exile as a proclamation. And it's so deeply, once again, so deeply personal. I will make you to be a light of truth 
to those considered the nations outside of the realm of God's blessing. I will make you, he says, agents of healing to those with disabilities, the blind. I will make you conduits of freedom, captives in prison. And through you, I will bring transformation of circumstance, release from dungeon. Now, let's be honest. We can't do any of that. No way. But we know one who does, don't we? We know one who has. We know one who wants to. We know one who continues to do it. I will make you a covenant for the people in a time that felt like meaningless to these exiled people. Isaiah is reestablishing something here. He's reestablishing their call in righteousness to be, not for them, but for these folks he's talking about, a light to the nations, to those who've been deprived of justice, to those who are blind, to those who haven't been given opportunity. We know this was filled up in Jesus. He took all this and became all of this. We also know the church is the body of Jesus, the body of Christ. And so now this call is given to us. As we live in his righteousness, we become this covenant to the nations. God pursues us redemptively, and he invites us to be faithful, not perfect, faithful, to him in the little we have say over and it's not much but in the little we each of us and collectively have say over bridge point god pursues you he knows you he calls you in righteousness to be faithful with what he's given you rock hill god knows you he has seen you and he calls you in righteousness to be faithful Rock Hill and Bridge Point together. He knows us. And I personally believe he's excited about the partnership we enjoy. He wants us to be faithful together in that partnership of the gospel. See, we live in this interface between God's physical creation and his kingdom. If we will be faithful, we learn how to cooperate in his rule, in his reign. We discover its ways. And as we discover its ways, we learn its truths. And as we discover its ways and learn its truth, we learn to live in that life. This is the nature of our covenant called gospel. Called good news. The nearness and the availability of Yahweh to each and every person present in Jesus. His kingdom is his reign in our lives. And as we submit our lives to his reign in them, it's here we discover this covenant faithfulness with his gospel. It starts in small, seemingly unimportant ways. To be honest with you, as it progresses, often it looks small and unimportant. But as we learn faithfulness in those little ways, we become more and more this textured covenant people who've been entrusted with the gospel. 
We come to understand the nature of this kingdom and we come to live it out and flesh it out in our homes, in our families, in our neighborhoods, in our work, and together as community. And it is amazing. Isn't it great to get to be part of something like that? I mean, I don't have words for all that. I'm just throwing them out there, doing my best. But God has given us and called us and entrusted us to something so amazingly simple that our children can grasp it and profound that the scholars can't get their brains around it. And he's redeeming the universe through it. Which brings us to the last movement of hope. We're almost done. It's the movement of continuous worship. I had to get another C word because we already had creation, call, and covenant. So the movement of continuous worship, verse 8. This is a great verse. Do you know this verse? I am the Lord. I am the Lord. I am Yahweh. That is my name. I will not share the glory of my name to another or my praise to false imitations, to spirits who want to compete with me, to humans who think they're doing it on their own. I will not share my glory with them. It's a proclamation of God in the midst of this exiled people. It's a call of a supreme kind. I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not share my glory. If you want glory, you look my direction. And you will experience the participation in my glory. See, all this is, is a call to worship, which we're going to do in a second. It's a call to worship. God alone is worthy of our worship. In worship is where we say, my identity is not in the land. It is not in the nation. It's not even in my family. Yes, I have identities in that, but that's not the core. All those things will leave me one day. And I will be left with one, and I will answer to one. And in that moment, those things won't matter. The call to worship the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. The one who has seen us. The one who has committed, I will keep you. The one who has promised, I will hold you. And the one who has given us a vision and a mission that's embarrassingly too big for us, I will make you a light to the nations. That you may bring my salvation to the ends of the earth, he says, in chapter 49. The prophet ends this little section with a charge of sorts. Conveniently for me, they both start with the letter C. It's a charge to curiosity and to courage, I think. Look at verse 9. See the former things have taken place. You guys have been through some tough times. You've been taken out of your land. Some of your relatives have been put to the sword. You're living in a land and with a language and under rulers you don't respect. See, those things have taken place. But new things, he says, new things, I declare. 
before they spring into being, here I am announcing them to you. Isaiah liked making much of this new thing language. He says it again in chapter 43. It's part of the same song. You might check it out if you have time later. Because he wants us to imagine the new thing God wants to do. Sometimes it's hard to imagine the new thing when you're in exile. Or when your field of vision has become narrow. Or, or life is hard. Or you're living with circumstances and situations that is less than what you thought. Isaiah wants us to hear. God sees it. God knows how to take little things and do meaningful things with them. I want to close with a poem that I stumbled across about a month ago. I don't know the poet. Uh, his name was John Donahue. Maybe some of you know it. But I thought it was appropriate um, for this message. It kind of hit home as I read it, and maybe there'll be a line or a word or something that might hit home for you. It'll take me about 90 seconds to read it. It's got five stanzas. Six. Here it is. It's called For a New Beginning. In out-of-the-way places of the heart, where your thoughts never think to wonder, this beginning has been quietly forming, waiting until you were ready to emerge. For a long time, it's watched your desire, feeling the emptiness growing inside of you, noticing how you willed yourself on, still unable to leave what you had outgrown. It watched you play with the seduction of safety and the gray promises that <clears throat> sameness whispered. It heard the waves of turmoil rise and relent and wondered, will you always live like this? Then the delight, when your courage kindled, and out you stepped onto new ground. Your eyes young again with energy and dream. A path of plentitude opening before you. Though your destination is not yet clear, you can trust the promise of this opening. Unfurl yourself into the grace of beginning that is at one with your life's desire. Awaken your spirit to adventure. Hold nothing back. Learn to find ease in risk. Soon you will be home with a new rhythm. For your soul senses the world that awaits you. pray together. Lord, so often we get stuck, maybe for honest, 
feeling trapped in our little lives, in the things we have say over, our responsibilities that don't look much like the vision we had for them earlier, in the task and the routines and the mundane and, Lord, the pain and loneliness, isolation, sometimes even suffering of our lives. It's easy for us to start slumping. Lord, today we've been reminded that there's a creator who has called us, who's seen us, who is committed to hold and keep us. A Lord over all the universe who's been majoring for millennium in people who the world say don't matter. Who's been taking little lives, little flocks, imparting his breath and life on them and then watching their part of the world change. God, our ask this morning is, would you do it again? Would you do it in our individual lives? Would you do it in our community? Would you do it in our communities together? God, we, we don't want to live in the seduction of safety. We don't want to settle for sameness. God, we're, most of us are too old to think we can just venture out and do it on our own. We need you to guide us. We need you to breathe the life that we need to be faithful with this little you've given us. Lord, today we're in a refreshed room that lots of people have served and spent a lot of time helping out. Lord, our cry is, mess this room up. Mess it up. Put scuff marks on the walls. Help us to spill coffee on the carpet and, and knock stuff over because it's filled with people who are coming to know you. Let our, let our kids fall down and skin their knees on this, these stairs. Father, we, we want to give our lives anew afresh to you. You've done it before, Lord. You've taken people that don't matter and brought things that matter deeply. So we're asking do it again. Today we remember what you've done just in the two little communities that is us. Thank you. Call us forward, Lord. Do a new thing, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.